episode 24. Here we go. You know, I was catching up with an old friend of mine recently, and she said, isn't it funny how much amazing music came out when we were in high school? And I agreed with her. I thought she was spot on. I mean, some of the best music ever came out when I was in high school, which is funny. Um, but I mean, of course, you always end up loving the bands that you were listening to during that time. And this next act is that for me. I remember being in high school, taking guitar lessons from my local music teacher and telling him that there were no modern bands that rocked hard and had big guitars. And he said, oh, sure there are. You got to check out this band, Blackberry Smoke. And I did. And I mean, I guess the rest is history. I fell in love to this day. One of my favorite bands, especially one of my favorite rock guitar oriented bands. I'm obsessed. I listen to every record that they put out. I know every song, every word. They're that band for me. Like, I think everyone has that band or a couple of those bands. Blackberry Smoke is that band to me that hit me at the right time and I, I just love them. But I, I mean, in all seriousness, they are an, an amazing rock band. So much energy, so much fun to watch live. The songs are amazing. The harmonies, the vocal harmonies are amazing. They're, they're just a great band. They've been carving it out for years. And th this was an amazing opportunity. I was so excited to interview Charlie. And, and by the way, this band never takes a break. Even in quarantine, they're out on the road performing these drive-in shows. They're doing a live stream tomorrow night at the Ryman. Tickets are still on sale tomorrow, September 23rd, depending on when you're listening to this. I'll be watching for sure. Tickets are still on sale. You can go to their website and check them out. Okay, I'm done because I, I can't wait for you guys to listen to this. Let's dive in. So how do you get George Jones to sing on Little Piece of Dixie? He's on uh, Yesterday's Wine at the end of the record. How do you guys get him on that recording? Well, um, initially I reached out to Jamie Johnson. Um, uh, to come and be a duet partner, really. Um, and uh, he said yes at that point, you know. And then Trey Wilson, our manager, was working with George. And uh, he, I believe it was Trey that said, why don't we ask George? And I thought, well, why don't we? While we're at it, let's ask, you know, Merle Haggard and Willie Nelson. And, I and mean, Jesus. we're asking... If, if we're asking, let's just, you know, meaning that I, I didn't think in a million years that he would say yes. And uh, sure enough, he said, I'll be there. Let me know what time. And I didn't really think it was going to happen until he walked through the door. And then it was because, I mean, I had never spoken with him, you know. And uh, he walked in and it was like, oh, okay, this is real. This is really going to happen. Holy cow. And because and there's a great video where you guys are all in the studio together yeah. singing. Like, what, what was that experience like? Like, was it totally surreal or, or what? Do you, do you remember much of it? I do remember. It was very surreal. Um, the producer that, uh, that worked the session, James Stroud, uh, he had worked with George before. And he said, uh, I don't know what George will want to do. I don't know if he'll want to sing the whole song or if he'll want to, you know, just sing a couple of lines or uh, whatever, you know, might have been. And right at that point, that week, George turned 80. So, you know, uh, um, James was like, I don't know how much he wants to work, you know. He's kind of past that. And um, when George came in and we played him the audio 
Well, actually, we had already already recorded the audio, and Jamie and I had both uh, put a vocal down. Um, so George came in, and, and uh, he was like, why don't we sing the whole thing again? And uh, we said, yes, that'll be great. Let's sing the whole thing again. So that's what we did. Somewhere on a hard drive, I've got the whole day uh, video. And uh, it's fantastic. There's a lot of stuff that's not safe for work uh, that was that was said between takes um, on all of our parts. Even he had us in stitches. He being George Jones, he was he was better than advertised. Absolutely. So I started listening to you guys. Little piece of Dixie when that record came out, and I remember being I was in high school, and the other day like like yesterday i was going through the liner notes and i i totally didn't realize that dan huff was was involved in that record and he was the um the um what, what was he executive producer of production or he had like a title in the liner notes how how did dan huff get involved with you, with you guys and like how how did he how did you first connect with him well he was a co-producer of that record he co-producer yeah that he produced it alongside Justin Ebank. Um, uh, how we met Dan uh, was through a mutual friend uh, in Nashville um, named Bruce Birch. Um, and I'm not sure if, if Dan had heard any of our music before that meeting, maybe he had, but he came to meet us in Atlanta uh, at a show that we played at this little bar. And um, it's a funny thing, he was very nice. Uh, he came in and uh, we were coming off of, we were in a van touring around the country, you know, playing every hockey tonk between here and California. And um, we came in on no sleep. And so I, I think all of us were kind of like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like I haven't slept in three days. Uh, but then uh, we sound checked and Britt, our drummer, turned his ankle stepping down off the little stage and like, it was it was kind of a go to the hospital kind of moment. Like we, he basically broke his ankle. Oh so then God. it was like, oh great, you know we're gonna play for this guy who wants to basically sign us to a deal, and the drummer's broke. Ankle. So he went and got one of those like air cast things put on and uh, and played the show. And uh, as far as I can remember, it was really good. But Dan came, you know, after and was like, I love it. Let's make a record. Uh, in the beginning, it was, um, I don't know if the plan was to make a, a full album or just to make some, uh, like an EP or uh, record some singles. I don't know. That was a very confusing period for our band because we were kind of hopping label situations. And uh, But that's basically, then we went in and made, uh, it was very piecemeal. We would go in and record a couple of songs and then Dan was really busy. And then he'd be like, okay, let's get together again in three weeks. There we were like, oh, okay. <laughs> and uh, I mean, he was in demand, you know, he was working with Keith Urban and uh, Rascal Flats and all these bands. And I mean, who were we, you know, to, to, to demand, we make it now, the whole album. But uh, anyway, so by the time we were done, we had recorded 12 or 13 songs, you know, and put them all together. And it was like, okay, here's our record. And, uh, it was fun. It, we, we recorded at some great studios, Blackbird and the Castle, and then uh, we did some work at, at Justin's house uh, out in Leaper's Fork at the time, which was beautiful. And it was really cool. 
How was it fun to work on guitar sounds with Dan? Was he very hands-on with that? Did he kind of let you run with your own tone? What, what was it like sort of, you know, recording guitars and, and doing guitars with him? Well, he kind of let us go. Um, I mean, we, I think he wanted to capture the sound that we were getting, you know? Um, and I did ask him at one point, uh, we were sitting around doing some, I think putting a solo down and, I said, Dan, do you want to play on this at all? And I think he said something like, you don't want me to take this away from you, buddy. <laughs> I love it. So, okay, wait. So these drive-in shows that just got announced, how do those come together? Does Live Nation reach out to you guys? Do you go after them and say, hey, we're dying to play. What can we do? How did those ideas first come onto the table? Well, I don't really know specifically. Um, I mean, I think it usually is a call made to our agent, you know, um, and then obviously there are feelers out there and because um, we want to work, you know, uh, badly, just like everybody. And it's been great to know that you can do this, you know, because obviously for months and months, it's all, it, it's been live stream uh, or nothing, you know, and uh I saw some bands going and doing those early drive-in shows with no PA and it was, you know, the people sit in their car and listen to this, basically their car stereo, which I was like, right. wow, is that, is that something we want to leave the house to go do? You know, I mean, it's, and it's, um, business obviously is different, you know, um, the business model. So, uh, but it was really cool when, when it finally, came to fruition that there were going to be shows that were actual shows. You just, the audience is, is, uh, placed differently, you know, and distancing and the cars and the little delineated rectangles. And, but we did, you know, we just did some in, uh, last week we did, uh, a couple in Pennsylvania and Massachusetts and New Jersey and Virginia. And it was fantastic. What's the, so there was a post on Instagram, a little while before where it looked like you guys were in like a, um, like a rehearsal space and you were like, we're, you, we're dusting off, you know, the cobwebs or whatever. After not playing for a while and you guys come together to rehearse, how, how much rehearsal do you guys need to get back up to where you're at? Is it like riding a bike or, you know, do you feel a little rusty? Definitely rusty. Um, we only had time to, for one day uh, with the whole band. And so I think after, you know, at this point, after 20 years, it's like, do your homework. Don't come Show in here. Prepared. Don't come in here unprepared. You're going to get the, the evil eye from everybody, you know. But it is a, it is a lot of, uh, a lot like the riding the bicycle. Muscle memory takes over, you know. It's like I, I was talking to a friend that sings and plays guitar about this the other day. And it's like funny how even certain motions, uh, the way that you move your body when you play, you know, a certain riff and you sing a lyric and it's like, my body has done this thousands upon thousands of times. So once you do it, it's like, that's what it is. I stood on the, on the steps walking on stage at Madison square garden when we opened for Zach Brown back in 2010 or so and it was sold out. And it was this, this tangible energy, you know, and I, we were terrified, of course, uh, in the best way, butterflies. And I was standing on the steps and was like, oh, no. What's the first 
line of the first verse of this song. And I started freaking out. And Paul Jackson was standing beside me. And I said, Paul, what is the first, what are the first words of this song? And he's like, I don't know. You wrote it, you know? And I'm like, I don't know. But as, as soon as we, I stepped and played, you know, it's like, oh, that's it what be you. So that night it was like, don't ever do that again. Don't ever stand there and try to remember what the lyrics are. They'll happen, you know? They'll come to you. How do you guys figure out, I'm always curious, because you know, in like sleeping, there's a couple songs like Sleeping Dogs or Ain't Much Left to Me where you always do these big jams in the middle. How, how do you work those up in rehearsals? How, like, do you come up with them minutes before you go on stage? How, how do you put those together? Well, the, we've never rehearsed any of them um, and it really happens in the moment. And uh, I'm sure the rest of the members of Blackberry Smoke hate me for this, but we don't talk about it. It's kind of like the elephant in the room, not in a bad way, but it's whatever happens spontaneously. What if, and you know, many times Brit has come to me after and gone, what was that? What, what was that? You know? So, but they, I look, you know, that's part of uh, something that, that's a, that's a, that's a thing that keeps it fresh and interesting to me. You know, it's almost like a game. Like who's going to follow me when we start playing this, this yes song. Follow Everybody. Charlie. That's the. Yeah. <laughs> but Absolutely. we did. After a while, you know, over the years, we've put different uh, little snippets of songs in there, and there have been times where now we've done a bunch of them and been like, "Well, which one should we do?" You know, you can't. You can't do. You know, you might go a tour doing one, and then you come back and go, "Well, we got to do something different now. We can't do, you know, Led Zeppelin in here anymore. We got to do Herbie Hancock or something." So. Right, you gotta keep it interesting. Okay, so you're in the rehearsal room for these shows, and then do you guys take the bus to the venue or to the drive-in? How how are you guys? Do you guys travel yeah. either for the for these drive-in shows? Everyone's still getting in the bus and going down to them. We did. We all had to be tested for COVID before we could get together. You know, and uh, so we all went and did that, and then actually we had to be tested again. Um, and I was told that it was because of the regulations. Uh, in the state of Massachusetts. So we all went to Scranton. We were in Scranton, Pennsylvania the other day and all got up and, and got tested again and we're all clean again. And, and you know, it's, it's, uh, it's the new model. What's it like with the energy of the crowd? Can you feel that the crowd is there? If they're singing along, can you hear that? Is it like, what, like how, how's the energy different? Um, it's a little different because they're, they're, pretty far away from the stage to start with. Um, right. So it's a little hard to hear. Um, but I think, I mean, I can see, you can see it. Even people out there with masks on, you can see that they're happy because they're, they're doing their thing and they're, they're happy to be there. It's just a, it's a good energy. It's a different kind of energy than being all crammed up, you know, onto the stage. And, um, it's just different, but, but it wasn't at all a disappointment to me. You know, I don't think to any of us, it was like, we're so happy to be up here together uh, playing songs that it, it doesn't matter. It's good. Are people honking their horns and like... <laughs> yeah, there was a couple of honks. And I think that maybe that, uh, I, don't, I don't know for sure, but I think maybe they that had been discouraged. <laughs> uh, but we got some, instead of like the the stomping and clapping and and chanting for an encore it was right right, right. <laughs> unbelievable okay wait so in normal 
times, how many dates are you guys doing a year? Over 250? Close? No, no. There were, there were a handful of years where we did over 200, um, between 200 and 250, uh, and that would kill uh, the average bear. So um, we stay between, uh, between 100 and 150 now. Um, that's healthy. Uh, that's still a lot, you know, because that doesn't Absolutely. include doesn't include travel days. Those are the shows. Absolutely. Um, so, okay. So now you're home probably for the first longest stretch of time since you've started this band. Are you going insane? How, how are you spending your time? Do you, do you play guitar every day? Yeah. Yeah. Always. I um, mean, they're always here. So, um, but I, I wrote a lot of songs. Uh, we made a new album with Dave Cobb just a couple of months ago. Wow. And, uh, it's great, man. It's a guitar record um he's the guy do it he's the guy yeah we've known dave a long time he's an old atlanta guy you know he was in a band here for years um but obviously he's uh uber successful and he's doing a great service to the world <laughs> making making great sounding records um but we had uh, i had talked to him the last few years about hey let's make a record you know and and uh, finally um reached out when all this began actually before it began back in february and he was like yeah let's go in at the end of march we were going to finish a canadian tour and go straight into the studio and of course that couldn't happen so then uh beginning of the summer he was like i got some time if you guys feel comfortable you know we'll stay distanced and we'll wear our stuff and you know do our thing so we did and um i can't wait for the world to hear it man it's great but we but that, and, but then we finished that and it's like, huh, all right, well, here I am back at home still. Um, so just still writing songs and I mean, it, there's, what else can you do? You know, that's. Now, when you're recording with Dave, do you bring in all your guitars? He's got an amazing guitar collection. Are you playing some of his? Like, are you guys going back and forth? Well, I'm sure, does he pressure you to buy vintage gear? I've heard he's, he does that also. <laughs> well, I've got a lot. We do, uh, especially Benji Shanks and I got a lot of vintage gear. So we spent a lot of time because we took a lot of it. Uh, and Dave's, he would never say, no, don't bring that. You know, he's like, hell yeah, bring it all. So we spent a lot of time, you know, nerding out over this guitar and that amp and this fuzz pedal and that Echoplex. And I do, I will say that according to Dave Cobb, I own the greatest EP3 that was ever built. That's it. Wow. That's it a mid 70s echoplex so so i got that going for me he tried that's, to buy that's it. real cred that's real cred <laughs> yeah Wait. i might have i might have sold it to him had he just said hey man i want to sell this thing but he prefaced it with this is the greatest echoplex i've ever heard want to sell it and i said of course not of course not you just told me yourself why would i i can't sell it now no way yeah. or at least i've got up the price it's like right. yeah five hundred thousand dollars sold right yeah yeah when you when you sit down to practice are you the kind of player that do you have like a real routine do you play along to a record do you pick up the guitar and just try to make something that sounds good to you what are there is there stuff you're still trying to work on what, what kind of things do you practice uh i guess it varies i mean i think most guitar players when you pick up a guitar you're your hands are kind of like dogs. They go to a s similar place a lot of the time. And that becomes part of the challenge of, of trying to be a better guitar player. You know, you try to say, okay, well don't do that same thing over and over. You gotta, 
you know, expand your musical vocabulary if you can. But I've always been really fascinated with jazz guitar. Um, well, jazz just in itself is such an advanced musical idea, you know, playing around the note and creating tension and how far can you get it before it's just absolutely, you know, not even recognizable. Um, there's a funny Spinal Tap video of those guys going, jazz is basically playing the music wrong. <laughs> right, of course. <laughs> and why are you playing so quietly? What are you afraid of? Why is it so quiet? <laughs> right, right, right. Well, it's funny because I just had, last week I just brought a telly to get um, refretted and I've had for probably 15 years. And it was the first time I've ever had fretwork done to it. And all the fretware was in the first three frets. The majority yeah. of it. He was like, that's where everyone plays. That's where. Yeah, boy, <laughs> that's yeah. what it is. Well, I mean, I, I was thinking recently about how, you know, like I'm sort of at the point now where I'm kind of around the age or starting to get older where some of the records I listened to when I was younger, like the first Aerosmith record, Joe Perry was younger than I am now when I idolized that record. Yet to me, it still feels in, like it feels immortal. Like, like it feels like, you know, that, that's such incredible guitar playing. But it's weird to think about that he was younger than me when, when he played that. As you've gotten older as a guitar player, has your relationship with different sounds or different recordings change you know now when you listen to keith richards on those early records is it weird to think he was so young playing those records it is it makes me wonder what i was doing <laughs> that's how i feel <laughs> yeah I, mean, I was definitely uh uh more concerned with the party at that point but that's not really that true i mean you know we were wild we were all kind of so in our oats back then but i mean those dudes were that giants walked the earth then as far as rock and roll music is concerned you know and they they created this thing that was so new and then it's kind of like well where does it go from here you know um that's why i mean it's so gr all that music is so great that's why we all still love it you know it's, totally it was a it was so i was just thinking about the stones in particular i was talking to a friend the other day that was on he went on he was on the road with Stone Temple Pilots and they opened a bunch of shows in 94. And he said, I watched them operate and it's like, this is, it's almost like the president has come to town. You know, it was just such a huge event. And he was like, these dudes invented this, this way of touring, this larger than life opulent event kind of thing. You know, the Stones, that they were, they were the first. Do you still go back and try to figure out those little, because the Stones are like a weird band to learn because you can learn the harmony and the structure of the song and then you can always go back and pick out like little kind of things. Do you, are you, do you obsess over those little details or to you it's like, if you have the structure, do you put the Charlie Star stamp on it and, and you make it your own? When I was younger, I did. I mean, you know, when you're, when you're learning the guitar and, and, uh, I think like so many other players, you obsess with, I got to play this right. I got to play it, you know, just like he played it. Um, and then I think as you get older, maybe your brain gets a little too crowded with information. So that's not as important, you know, but it is, I mean, there are, you know, the stones, that kind of music is so, uh, it's obviously so melody based, even, even some of the guitar solos, you can sing them like totally. So, 
Right, man. So you want to play that. You don't want to, you know, you're not trying to not play like the, some of those solo licks and can't you hear me knocking? You got to play that or else right, you of get, course. Fired. get fired if you don't. Hey everyone, thanks for listening and hope you're enjoying the show. Some of you may know that I run an industry newsletter called the Nashville Briefing. Really takes you to the front row of everything happening in our industry. And if you want to learn more about it, you can go to nashvillebriefing.com to subscribe. Also, if you're enjoying this show and specifically this episode, please feel free to give us a five-star review on your podcast listening platform. Thanks so much. Now back to the show. Totally. So, okay, so let's go back for a minute. So Bob Dylan said in New York Times article recently, he said, you know, if you don't grow up playing bluegrass guitar, you'll never be able to truly learn it. You grew up playing bluegrass guitar. Your father was a bluegrass player. How is, are you grateful to kind of, to have had that foundation of bluegrass guitar? How has that affected your growth as a guitar player, you know, up until now? I definitely appreciate it. Um, You know, when when I was, my dad, he never was a solo player, uh, like he not a lead player. He was just playing the rhythm and singing a song. But but watching the way that he would play that rhythm guitar, you know, that is very important in my opinion. Um, I see guitar players uh, now that uh, don't come from that and. I mean, obviously, they, I'm not saying it's a it's a mandatory prerequisite, but I think it it really. I don't. There's something about that whole troubadour kind of thing, like a guy that can sit with his guitar, play, and sing a song. You know, that's about as essential as it gets. Um, and those guys, that's what those guys do. You know, um, bluegrass in itself is so. Uh, it's complicated music, you know, it leans forward. It's not a, it's not a back in the pocket music. It's very aggressive, fast, it's like speed metal. Um, but, at the, but at the same time, it's all about improv too. So it's very like jazz in that regard. So it's very, a lot going on. And then you get the vocal harmonies, uh, which are just, I can't imagine a world without high lonesome bluegrass vocal harmony. It's, I, I don't want to live in that world if it, you know, so I, I, I cherish all that, um, the love of all that music. And to think, you know, when I was about 11 years old, you know, none of my, none of my friends, I knew how to play like the Wreck of the Old 97 and Roll in My Sweet Baby's Arms and Blue Moon in Kentucky on the guitar. And none of my friends were, were interested in that. They're like, no, 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 this is how you play Iron Man, which I love too. I was like, well, I want to do that. So it was kind of like, I don't like that bluegrass music. I don't know what you're talking about. You know, it was not something to be proud of but then it never you know I, I might have shunned it for a while and been like well I don't want to play hillbilly music I want to play Led Zeppelin you know so if a, if a little kid comes to you today and says you know I, I want to learn the guitar I've never picked up a guitar do you recommend would you, would you tell that kid get a steel string acoustic and learn how to play bluegrass first before you get an electric or what, what would you tell that kid I don't know if I would go that far I, like I say I don't know if it's essential I think it helps. I mean, that's a good place to start, but I, that's a good place for, you know, somebody who's going to play the guitar and sing. Um, specifically, I think that's, that's a, it's really, um, I mean, not even bluegrass, but like traditional country music, like Hank Williams. Um, he was a guitar player, singer, singer, songwriter, 
you know. He never, well, he did actually play a lead on the song My Bucket's Got a Hole in It. He played a solo, but he didn't have to, you know. Right. But as far as delivering a song to someone that you wrote, you know, you can't get a better start than a bluegrass guitar. But at the same time, you know, my youngest or my oldest son, uh, I tried and tried to get him to love that. And, and I think he was just kind of like, whatever. And then when he heard, when he heard Eruption, Van Halen, he's like, now nah, you're talking. Now nah, you're talking. That, so, that, it's weird how that song has such a visceral effect on everyone yeah. the first time. I mean, if, it is what it is. And it's bombastic. And it's a boy in a china shop. But I remember so clearly hearing it for the first time. Yeah. And just being like, what the hell? And it's weird because I had heard other heavy playing at that point. But there's something about that song that just... Yeah everybody connect it's so weird what he captured on that recording it's so musical you know i remember being probably probably about 10 or 11 and thinking uh well my sister's boyfriend at the time put it in like put the cassette in his car and it was like oh he turned it up i mean you know he wasn't kidding but i remember it was it was uh uh very powerful uh, you know I, I was like is that what is that instrument that can't be a guitar doing that. And so I spent the whole rest of the day obsessed with it, you know, like, what was that? That was, ah, uh, you know, it really like knocked a hole in me. But I, we, me and my buddies back then, you know, guitar players uh, were like, you were either an Eddie guy or a Randy Rhodes guy. <laughs> and I, I was always an Eddie guy because he, he played the blues too. There was a, there, he never really went in for like the classical and all these different modes and scales. It was always totally. really, really blues. You've got, you've got Ice Cream Man on that first record. Yeah, which is a John Brown song. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. T totally. So what was the first electric guitar that you ever got? I had a, a, a Height Deluxe. It was a Moserite copy. And uh, I had a, uh, my best friend and I got on our bikes and, and um, I had an acoustic guitar and, and uh really you know that year was like a watershed year for me and my friends it was like okay and he goes man there's this guy his name's Bubba and uh, he lives over here on so-and-so street and he's got a guitar for sale for $25 do you think you could get $25 I said yeah man I'll tr I'll do my best and I somehow scraped up $25 and we rode over and and uh, we I'll never forget we went into his house and like his mom let us in he was in his bedroom and he was playing a uh just a an, an unfinished flying V. I think maybe he built it. I'm not sure, but he was sitting in there playing Sabbath songs and, and through an amp. And he was the only person I ever saw that actually had an amp, you know. And it was like, whoa, he's ripping. Listen to that. So he was like, he's. We were eleven. He couldn't. He may have been sixteen, but he he looked like an old man, like a grown man, you know. And he's like, how are you doing, kids? Uh, and I'm like good man i was uh came to ask you about the guitar <laughs> you know and he's like well here she is and, and he had taken that Moserite copy guitar and striped it up like eddie van halen it was black and white red and i was like i'll take it please <laughs> and and uh he's like you got an amp and i said no and he's like here's what you do you got a guitar cable i said yeah he goes uh go to your stereo you know everybody had a, a home stereo system right. This one just so happens belonged to my sister. He's like, put a blank cassette in the record side, because everybody had a dual cassette player. Put it in the record side, 
hit play, record, and pause at the same time. Plug this cable into the headphone jack and turn it all the way up. And so that's what I did. And, I, and it was this crazy distorted sound coming out of the home stereo speakers. And it was like, there it is. There's, there's paranoid. I got it. So anyway. So so did you did you ever take like formal lessons or were you pretty much your father taught you the basics and then were you pretty much self-taught from there he taught me the basics and then he had a friend who was a music teacher not just a guitar teacher but he was a music teacher and when he first saw that i was really not gonna put his guitar down i mean i think it was obvious to him this kid is attached to my guitar he sent me to him uh, and he didn't really just teach me guitar. He taught me a little bit of piano, a little bit of like singing, like, and I think he was just making sure I had pitch, you know, and then a few more chords than my dad knew. He taught me some bar chords and things like that, but that was it. Um, and that only went to, you know, see him maybe for a few months. Um, and then, I mean, that, I remember him saying, you need to just go do what, you know, figure it out. You got it, you know, meaning that you got where, where it starts. Um, the embryo or the idea, but you know, he couldn't teach me Led Zeppelin either. So I was just like, I got you're on you. your own. <laughs> yeah. You're, but that was it basically. And at that point too, I think my dad saw me, you know, at one point he's like, he wants to play Led Zephyr and stuff like that. <laughs> so, I'm like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. how long did that $25 guitar last you before you had to get something else? Not very long. I, I uh, well, a couple of years, um, I wound up with a, uh, a Les Paul copy. It was, um, a Hondo, I believe. Um, and it was, a it was like a cherry burst copy, um, that belonged to a friend's grandfather. And I wound up with it somehow, some kind of trade. Um, but then I finally got my eye on a, on a 1978 Gibson SG. And uh, I think I cut grass to raise the money for that. And I, that was my first Gibson. And uh, that, was, that was serious business then. And I was like, oh, look at that logo, man. Gibson. You're a bit, it smells good, too. Well, I remember my yeah. first Gibson. You opened the case, and I was shocked at the way it smelled. Smells yeah. good, like a new car, kind of. <laughs> well, it smells like grandma's car, you know. Yeah, <laughs> something like that. So, okay, so you're you're rising in the scene. You're playing in, you know, a couple different bands. You're on a, playing, you know, parts of Blackberry Smoke. Where we're in a band that was on a major label. You know, a lot of this has been talked about, in, you know, in, in various places. And then, how do you guys? How does the first Blackberry Smoke tour come together? Where you're in that first band, and then. Were you opening up for Jackal? Was it yes. on the first tour? How how does how do you get to that place where you, you know you're nobody's and then all of a sudden you're on the road opening up for Jackal? <laughs> well, Jesse Dupree he came to Brit, our drummer, and we had gone into a studio in Atlanta and recorded two songs, um, "Sanctified Woman" and "Normal Town," and um, this is right as we had started the. We came out of another band, but right as we started, you know, we wanted to play shows as Blackberry Smoke. Um, and we did, you know, uh, I had written maybe, maybe five songs um, that would be, you know, the first Blackberry Smoke songs. And, and anyway, Jesse heard that first demo and he was like, uh, he invited us up to his house and we went and he was sitting there and he's like, you got any more songs? I said, nope. Well, other than the, the five, you know, 
he's like, can you write some more? I said, I'll try. And uh, so he said, I want to make a record. And it was like, what? Like a, like a whole record, <laughs> you know? And, uh, but I did, I wrote a few more and then we picked a couple of covers. Um, uh, Freeborn Man and um, Another Chance, which was this George Satellite song. And we went into his studio and made a record. And he, that, his plan, he's like, I want to make this record and I'm bring you on the road. And I think he knew it's like teach you how to tour. Why do you think? Oh, what? Why do you think he picked you guys? Did he just love the musicianship and the like? What did he see in you guys that? Oh no, he did tell me one time that you know that first song, uh, "Sanctified Woman," and that was the the first song I wrote coming out of. Fun uh, song. Man, thanks. He told me uh, he's like that song is like um, it sounds like shortening bread. And everybody loves shortening bread. So I was like, huh, okay, well, it kind of does, the melody, you know? Right, right, right. But he loved it, and he still does. To this day, he does, he, he's my, my friend, you know, but he's like, that's the song. That's, that's my favorite Blackberry Smoke song. But I think he saw um, something that he loved in us, you know, and he, he, he wanted to help. Uh, so how long were you guys, how long did it take for Blackberry Smoke to, I guess, become profitable. How long were you guys in the van? You know, was it profitable from that first tour? Were you guys walking away with a little bit of money? Or how no. long did it take to get to the point where it's like, you were bringing on crew members, okay, we're, we're graduating to the bus. At what point does that start to happen? Well, um, it took a long time. I mean, we were, we were rolling around in that van, you know, going all over the country uh, with no crew for years, for eight years, maybe, you know? And um, even after making Little Piece of Dixie, I mean, we were still, we had hired one crew guy then, but we were, you know, a four piece band basically with one crew guy. And then, um, I mean, we were starting to, we were putting in the hours and people were, more and more people were starting to come see us, which was good. And you could see that sl very slowly, you know, building and building and building. And, um, and then, uh, when we made the Whippoorwill record, um, Zach Brown, we, the, the last, it's a long, complicated story, but the last independent label situation that we were involved in fell apart. So, yeah. And we, we were labelless. And Zach Brown had that year, you know, he had a huge year. And uh, he was a friend in Atlanta, you know, band. And um, he got wind, you know, that we were kind of without a label. And um, so he basically, came around and was like, Hey, I'm starting a label. Would you guys like to be a part of it? And we were like, yeah, we had already done shows, uh, cruises with him with on the, he was on some of the Skinner cruises that we were on and we were all kind of friendly, you know, but it was pretty easy decision. Like, well, this makes perfect sense. This is almost like Capricorn. You know, he's basically gonna, gonna form this new Capricorn type situation in Atlanta with us and Wood Brothers and Levi Lowry and Sonia Lee. And, um, it was a, it was a, that was a great year. Um, but he, you know, he was like, well, what do you want to do? You want to come on the road with me? And we were like, yeah, but we really want to make a new record. Cause we haven't made, we've, we've been wanting to make this record and we haven't been able to for two years, you know, while we've been tied up with all these, all these problems. And so he's like, done, go make a record. Why don't you go do it at, um, Echo Mountain in Asheville. It's a great studio. We were like, okay. And we went there and, that was the moment like funny too we recorded a bunch of songs that i 
I thought that we should have recorded them on the previous record, but some people disagreed with me, some, some people in the business. <laughs> and it, it, that was one thing that taught me. It's like always trust what your heart tells you and your own gut instinct because you're always right for you, always. If your gut tells you yes, then it's yes. If your gut tells you no, it's no. It never lies to you. And so Absolutely. looking back, so we go into the studio and we basically, it was the production team. It was Blackberry Smoke, Clay Cook, Matt Mangano, and executive producer, Zach Brown. But basically what he did was like, here's some money, go make a record. Go make the record you want to make. And that's what we did. And that's our best selling record. And it, it's the songs that, that I really thought were, these are the songs for the, a Blackberry Smoke record at that time, you know? And uh, Absolutely. I, I was right. And it, it, you know, the, the people proved that I was right. I didn't, they, they bought it. They bought way more of it than they had ever bought one previously. And as soon as we started playing shows, the lines started getting longer and longer and longer. And that's when it was like, Oh, we better, we got to hire a crew. Um, well, the crew can't all fit in this van. We better, we better get a bus. You know? We better get a bus. So it was so, right, around, right around 2009, 2010. That was the, the jumping off point. So I may lose half my audience with this question, but I, I'm curious. Song like Pretty Little Lie, do you write that with a bender guitar? Do you write the song and then you go, this would be great with a little B-bender part on it? How, how do you decide what guitars get a bender? Because there's a couple Blackberry Smoke songs that you use a bender on. Yeah, no, I didn't write it with a bender. I wrote that with uh, Travis Meadows, who's a great writer, great friend. Great writer in Nashville, yeah. yeah, yeah. Written written a lot of songs with him now. We, we kind of are attached to the hip. But um, uh, definitely didn't have bender in mind because we were sitting with two acoustic guitars. But we started to, uh, um, like we had a band rehearsal, and I said, all right, I got this new one, and played it. And, uh, you know, it's just one of those things where you're like, you know what it needs? A bender. A bender. Done. Yeah. Simple. <laughs> Done. Absolutely. Okay, wait. So let's go back for one second. So you're in the van for eight years. It's hard touring in a band or, you know, in a van with other guys. How do you keep the peace? And are you frustrated that things aren't moving faster? Like how, like, it's almost crazy that you guys would, now in hindsight, it paid off, but it's crazy that you guys would grind it out for eight years and not quit what pushed you guys through that or how did you guys keep going keep playing that game well i mean we had we had sort of figured out our business model you know brit our drummer he's um the drummer is always the business guy yeah he loves he loves business and he loves merchandise and he loves art because he's an artist he's a graphic designer by by trade and uh you know, we, we had so many conversations over the years about, you know, what's so cool about, um, you know, this Stones tour? Look at the tour shirt that came, that, you know, that was attached to this tour. Just, uh, you know, the whole, the whole ball of wax, you know. And so, you know, we knew from the very beginning, even from the Jackal guys, it's like, well, you know, selling your records and selling your merchandise, that's, that's how you make a living you know, on the road, you know? Um, it's, uh, I mean, we were making nothing to play a, a club back then, you know? 
it was just like wherever we could get booked. But luckily, to answer your question, I mean, those the the what we were getting paid or guaranteed to play a show got a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger and a little bit. It's all about you know supply and demand. When people would know that okay, well, more people are going to come next time. Um, so it was just a really slow process to answer your question. It took eight years because we didn't have a hit and we didn't have any support from radio at all. Radio's always ignored us. I don't know. I mean, I'm not complaining. It's just a fact. Um, I, people all the time would be like, why don't they play all on the radio? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't have an answer for that. But, Unbelievable. So, yeah. so do, you still, do you still like going out on the road? Is it still fun for you? Love it. I love it. This just going last week. I mean, obviously we've all been at home for five months, but it was heavenly. It's just, it becomes part of who you are. The, and even playing two nights in one town can be a little bit weird because you get so used to years and years of boom, goodbye, boom, see you later, boom, see you next time, boom. You know, it just is, it's, it's an addiction. So I imagine, I mean, the motions of the show itself are pretty similar every day. Sound check, you know, opener, go up, play, get up, whatever it is. But how else do you, how do you, like, what else do you do when you're in each city? Is, are there things, do you look for the best coffee shop? Do you try to find a museum? What's the, what's the thing that you try to do? I mean, it's it, record stores, music stores, bowling, coffee, restaurants, whatever. Hey, you know, somebody's like, hey, the pirate museum is across the street. I was just the other day. I'm like, hell yeah, we're going to the pirate museum. I mean, the, the only drawback, well, not the only drawback, but one downside to touring is you do, uh, you don't get to do as much as you would think because there's not always that much there's time. There's not that much time, right? You know, a lot of the time you're up until four in the morning and you're not going to want to get up at seven to go and well i don't to go and catch you know the early the early uh pirate music museum whatever <laughs> the seven o'clock showing uh, of the uh yeah you, <laughs> of the pirate uh, museum you know and yeah you have to sleep you know that's one thing that keeps you well out there keeps you healthy is get get enough get as much sleep as you can but um man i just love it all though you know how do you guys keep the peace? It looks like you guys always get along really well, you know, on the outside, you know, yeah. is, is, is there like, don't talk to Paul at like, you know, seven thirty, or like, how do you guys, you know, give everyone space and, and keep the peace? Well, I think you just learn, you know, exactly what you said. I'm not gonna mess with him today. I see that look in his eye, you know, it's uh, but I think we're all, I mean, we're, we're grownups now, you know, it's like, there's no, we don't, we used to fight about stupid stuff and probably still will, but I think you just get tired of all that and try to keep egos in check and, and just know that we're all working toward the same goal, you know? Totally. Okay. Through Charlie Starr's eyes, who is the best guitar player in the world ever Derek in history? Derek oh. Trucks? In, in, in history. Let's say in history. In history. Um, well, I guess there's a lot of criteria, a lot of boxes that have to be ticked because um, one dude might be really good at one kind of thing and one dude is really good at another kind of thing. But, oh uh, man, that's tough. Best in the world. Um, Merle Travis is way up there. Interesting. Um, Interesting answer. Okay. I mean, he was such an innovator. You totally. know, 
some people tell me that that are from that part of the country from kentucky you know they're like well he wasn't the only one doing that there was right but he was the one that got recorded and and there's video of it they're like he he learned that from old man simpson that lived down at the you know but i don't know i mean i I mean obviously Jimi hendrix was just nobody had played that way before with that kind of prowess uh I mean, think about when you first, when people first were hearing that first record, that was 1966, 67, like early 60s. Right. Pretty, pretty earth shattering kind of change from, I mean, if you even listen to like Satisfaction, it's like, uh, 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 and then you hear Purple Haze. It's like, oh, whoa. Okay. It's not even the same thing. (laughs) Yeah. And then, and, uh, but I don't know, man. There's, I mean, look at West Montgomery. Who can do that with his thumb? Right, right, right. But Derek Trucks today, you say that's your that's your guy today. I think he's the best guitar player I've ever seen up close. Um, and it's not only because he, um, like, the speed or the or the uh, is ferocity a word or ferociousness? Yeah, anyway. I'll take it. Could he, be. Can, he, he can get you with all that where it's just like, oh my God, that's just, but his touch and he plays with so much emotion. I, I was talking to his mom. We were on the Wheels of Soul tour and we were all kind of standing around watching the show. And he, he, he does uh, this thing where he will bring the band down to a whisper and he's barely whispering on the guitar and the entire audience hushes with him. They're hanging on everything he does, and it, and because it, he's it, he's like taking them on this emotional ride with him, you know. And uh, she, I said, you know what? I don't know that I've seen a whole lot of people that can do that. What he's doing right now, I mean, they are hanging on every noise he makes, and it's all good noise. Totally. Um, and he he's the most humble dude in the world. He'll just if I said that, he'd laugh, you know, and be like, oh, stop it. But he's he. A- I've he seen make, him like, yeah. He can make a grown man cry just by playing the guitar. He is so expressive, and I've seen him a, a couple times. I saw him in the Allman Brothers a couple times, and I feel like I always know he's going to be amazing, and I either forget how good he is or he keeps getting better. It's, it's one or the other, but every time I see him, I go, I, I don't even remember him being this good, and I, always, and I remember him being amazing anyway. It's like... Every time I see him, it's like it's better and better. It's unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But there, you know, that even in saying that, I mean, there's no best, you know? I mean, everybody, everybody's different. It's like a thumbprint, fingerprint, whatever. Um, I've seen Warren Haynes. Every time I watch him play, I'm just like, Jesus Christ, dude, what can you not do on that thing? You know, it's just, it's just a part of his being. Um, I don't know, man. Yeah. Are there different front men that you look at for inspiration or that you admire or that, you know, any like things you've done, you've got the hell yeah, of course, on the, uh, on the junior, um, any from Ernest Tubb, any, any, you know, guys that you look at and admire from the front Um, side of things? So many, I mean, Mick Jagger, I'm nothing like that, but he was obviously, it still is the most, the most entertaining front man. Oh, beyond. Never boring. (laughs) But I, I mean, I always loved Tom Petty. I thought, because he never said anything goofy. He always carried himself with, 
with a cool that not everybody has, you know, and, um, uh, Jesse from Jackal, when we used to watch, you know, them back in the, back in the early two thousands, um, I would watch him and be like, I told him once, I was like, you should have, if you weren't doing this, you'd be a televangelist, like one of those really extreme ones because he's got the gift of gab. I don't have that. You know, he, I mean, he can just go and it's never boring. And I'm like, where is that story coming from? It's never true. You know, he's just like riffing and uh, it's always, he was born to do that. Um, yeah. I love it. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll end with this. Any quarantine gear purchases, any recent guitars, amps, pedals, anything fun that's, uh, that, that you that bought online or anywhere else? Um, yeah, I bought some stuff. I bought um, a really good 65 Fender Deluxe Reverb. It's great. Um, I just I, bought a 66 Deluxe Reverb. Oh, did you? Okay, well then. For, from Carter's and, well, so I had I had a Maz 18. It was actually just before the quarantine, but I had a Maz 18 that I brought in for repair and, um, and and I was talking to the guy about how I'd never owned a Fender amp. And he said, we just got a great 66 and one of the best 66s I've ever heard. And I was like, yeah, sure. I sat in front of this thing and I said, okay, that's the best guitar sound I have ever had ever, period. But I went home. I literally had a dream about it in my sleep. And then I went back and bought it. <laughs> ah, see, that's what you tell your wife. You can't fight with a dream. That's like fake. <laughs> that's that's right. Wait, okay, so you just bought a 65? <laughs> yeah, and I, I got it from Rumble Seat just up the street from Carter, but it's great. And uh, got a, uh, a 58 TV junior, which is ridiculous. Is it um, yellow? It is TV yellow. Oh my God. <laughs> uh, and then a couple of, couple of pedals, um, uh, this fuzz face clone from Japan called Orga face. It's, uh, about as close as it gets. I mean, you know, a real fuzz face is probably two grand now. So I remember when those used to be like holding doors open in a, in like your, in your buddy's jam room. It's like, what's that? Oh, that's an old fuzz pedal. Nobody cares about that. <laughs> oh boy. Um, oh man. Okay. That's about I'm, I mean, I love my, um, there's some, it's weird because I think the volume knob on mine has definitely been just, you know, it was definitely the most used knob because it turns so much smoother than every other knob on the amp and yeah. it is so sensitive to it it's the even to my touch but also to the volume knob that yeah. tiny and i'll be like oh this is way too loud and the tiniest little thing between like three and a tiny bit under three is like all the difference it's insane how those things were made <laughs> oh, so good i i took it i took it to the studio uh making the record with with cobb and uh i used it most of the time like we would plug in things and he's like, it ain't beating that today. No, just right. one thing. I'm sometimes missing a little bit of the low end. Like I sometimes wish the low end was a little fatter because mine sounds a little bit tubby on the low end almost. Really? Oh, what speaker's yeah. in it? I got to double check. It's it's not the original speaker, but it's something old. Um, I got to double check exactly what's in it. But the, my like whenever I'm playing power chords or whatever, it's it's not the most satisfying, but it works. But the high end, is just insane. Like anything like mid to like high end, anything not on the ENA string is just like, it hits yeah. me so hard. It, like it makes me smile when I play it. It's incredible. <laughs> yeah. That's, the, that's what counts. 
That's what counts. How many juniors do you have? Is that your is that your favorite guitar all around to to get? I think so. I, I don't know. I, I have a. I really love them. Um, they for whatever reason they sound like I want a guitar to sound uh, more than any other guitar. Um, I probably have uh, eight, maybe eight or nine. I'm dying for a junior. I think I think it might be my next purchase. I was actually talking to someone about this, and yeah. I, I I don't have a Les Paul or anything like it. And I think a junior would be so fun because they're just they're just, they're minimal, they're easy, they're lightweight. Yeah. Then I'm Keith Richards. Yeah. Gosh, then they're they're a I good mean. they're a good inv a sound investment too because they're right now. I mean, they're way more expensive than I ever dreamed they would be, um, and they just keep going up. So I was just talking to my. I was just talking to my friend about how the junior is like the secret vintage guitar investment because you can actually kind of afford them and they're badass. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, they, they've doubled in value in three years. It's insane. It's crazy. Unbelievable. Yeah. Well, Charlie, I won't keep you. Thank you so much for taking the time. This was so fun. I've been a fan of the band since I was in high school. When I was in college, I was working at the House of Blues in Boston and you guys came through and I remember pushing those cases and rolling out those rugs and thinking this is the most badass night night ever. I think the the like couple days later, I Joe Perry was playing and I was pushing cases that said Aerosmith and I was like, this is the greatest job in the world. Yeah, um, man. But awesome talking with you and I can't wait to hear the new record and can't wait to see what you guys continue to do in the future because it's never boring with Blackberry Smoke. It's always fun and exciting. <laughs> Thanks so much. Great talking to you. Absolutely. Talk to you soon. Bye. All right. Charlie Starr, the frontman, singer, guitar player of Blackberry Smoke. There you have it. Thanks so much for listening. And thanks again to Charlie for taking the time to come on the episode. It was such a thrill. I'm, I'm so glad we were able to make it happen. Tomorrow night, depending on when you are listening to this episode, if, if you're listening today on Tuesday, tomorrow night, the 23rd, Blackberry Smoke is playing live at the Ryman. Tickets are still on sale at blackberrysmoke.com. Check them out and check out their tour schedule because they're actually touring right now doing a series of drive-in concerts. Check it out. Look into it. Be there. Show up. It, it's going to be amazing, I promise. I'm actually hoping to get to one of the shows myself, and, and I, I can't wait to do so. The Zach Kuhn Show is mixed by Sam Heyman, and our theme music is by Justin Johnson. And if you want more content from us, if you're like, this was so great, I can't get enough, you can subscribe to our newsletter at nashvillebriefing.com. And you can follow us on socials, everything at Nashville Briefing. Thanks again for tuning in, and we will see you next week. Bye.